Now, this morning, I want to tell you a story. It's a story that uh, many are familiar with, but actually, I think very few understand, even those people who consider the story their own, which I suspect is most people in this room right now. It's a story about things that really happen, or in some cases, things that are going to happen. Um, it's basically the story of reality. Now, when I say this, I realize there's a problem in our culture at this time in attempting to tell the story, because I think the effort will probably be misunderstood. I do a lot of traveling, and I get in conversations with people who sit next to me on airplanes. <clears throat> not all the time. I'm not, like, radically aggressive in that kind of situation, but I, uh, I do look for opportunities. And I was sitting next to a stockbroker, and he asked me what I did for a living, and I, I said I was a writer and a public speaker. And, of course, they always ask me, what do you write about? And what do you speak on? I also do a radio show for 26 years now. And now I'm at a crossroads because I want to tell them that I, that I, I, I write and I speak about religion and ethics and specifically in defense of classical Christianity. But I realize that I'm going to run into a problem when I say that. And it's not that the person is going to push back, but it's rather that the person is going to welcome it regardless of what that person believes. Because in their mind, and in the mind of many, most people in this culture, just most, across the board, both sides of the aisle, when it comes to religious questions, people think of religion as a kind of a spiritual fantasy club. <laughs> You find the club that you enjoy, that makes you feel good, and whatever it happens to be, good for you. Now, it doesn't mean that it has to be my club. Uh, I, I could have a different club. In other words, people don't think of religious claims as being true in the sense that gravity is true, all right? Uh, they might think it's true for you, and they wouldn't say that your view is false because that would be considered maybe impolite or intolerant, but they don't think it's really true in any deep fashion. And uh, my concern when I'm talking to anybody else about my own convictions, I avoid the word faith, by the way, because that plays into this misconception. If I talk about my faith, that's just your belief. No, I want to talk about my convic convictions, things that I, I'm convinced are true. When I talk about these things, there's a very particular way I'm going to talk about it because I, I don't want people to misunderstand. And, and, and it's a way I think many Christians have not fully grasped. And the confusion is especially difficult, I think, for followers of Christ to answer the two biggest challenges that they face to their worldview in the public square. And the first challenge is the problem of evil, and the second challenge is might be called the challenge of religious pluralism, but simply put, it's the, the idea that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Well, there's lots of religions out there. You're saying He's the only way. This is wildly politically incorrect. And what, because Christians don't understand their story, they don't realize that the two of these things are connected. One resolves the other, but that's, I'll get to, into it in just a moment. The point is, if they don't see their story properly, they're going to stumble at this point. They're going to have a hard time making sense of their own convictions to other people. And if we're not clear about something foundational, this is going to be a trouble for us. So, what is that something that we need to be clear on at the very foundation of our enterprise? 
Now, let me ask you a question, a rhetorical question. That is, I don't want you to answer, but I want you to think about it as if you did have to answer it. Here's that question. What is Christianity? What is Christianity? Now, as people would say, properly, it's a religion. Okay, that's right. That's true. Or maybe a guide for li- fulfilling, uh, living a fulfilling life, or maybe a roadmap to heaven, or, or maybe they wouldn't use that language, they would say it's a relationship. It's a relationship with God, or it's a relationship with Jesus. And all of those things are true as far as they go. I just don't think they go far enough. They don't really get at what I'm talking about here. These answers are too thin in a certain sense. And I think the answer to the question, what is Christianity, is re- much bigger than that. I think the correct answer to the question, what is Christianity, is this. Christianity is a picture of reality. That is, it's, a, it's a, an account or a description or a depiction of the way things actually are. It's a view of the way the world really is. Or another way of putting it is a, it's a world view. You know, worldviews, all of them have four parts to them. Uh, It's generally characterized by four words, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Those are kind of religious-sounding words, but it doesn't matter what worldview you have, even non-religious, they have to talk about ultimate reality, where we came from. They have to talk about what's man's problem, because everybody knows we have a problem. And then they have to talk about how to solve the problem. And then they have to show how that solution works its way out. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So we have, as followers of Christ, a take on that. But this picture that we have of reality is really a picture that's made up of pieces that fit together, okay? And um, in this sense, worldview is like a puzzle, like this. I have two daughters, got an 11-year-old and an 8-year-old. I think I stole this from them. I know you're thinking, he's got a, an eight-year-old? He's an old guy. That's really weird. Uh, and you're thinking, what are you, what's that guy going to do when that eight-year-old becomes a teenager? If I'm lucky, I'll be dead. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> but um, worldviews are like pictures made of pieces and like a puzzle. You have to have all the right pieces in order to make the full puzzle, right? You can't be missing pieces. You can't have pieces from other puzzles. And in this regard, I mean pieces of other worldview pictures kind of mixed in. If you do, you're not going to be able to put the puzzle together correctly. Now, this is what most, this is a problem here, that most Christians' worldview puzzles look like. A pile of pieces. Now, I know there's a whole bunch of you out there that are really annoyed that all these little pieces are laying on the floor. You'll be the ones that come up after the service and clean it up for me. The problem is, if your puzzle's in pieces, you've got little parts. You've got Jesus, and you've got the, the, the Trinity, and you've got David, and you've got Adam, and you've got the New Covenant, and you've got Moses, and you've got them all in there somehow in a mixture, but you don't know how they fit together. You can't make sense of the whole thing. Maybe you're missing pieces. You don't know it. Maybe you've got other people's worldview mixed in. I've talked to Christians who believe in reincarnation. 
This is crazy. You know why? Because there's no place for reincarnation to fit in our puzzle. It's like trying to put a carburetor on a computer. It doesn't do any work for us. It's a different system. It's a different puzzle, but they never put it together. They don't see that. So how is it that we put our pieces together properly? If you're a puzzle worker, you know there's a trick, and some think it's cheating, but we can do it here. And that is you look at the, the cover. You look at the big picture. And so what I would like to do in our time together here is I want to look at the big picture of Christianity, the story, it, 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 the, the big puzzle picture so that you can piece it all together properly. <clears throat> now, I want to give you a different way of understanding worldview. I've been talking about, <clears throat> about a, a picture and made of pieces like a puzzle, but another way of talking about a worldview is to talk about it like a story, and it's a good way to talk about it nowadays. And the Christian story is like many other great stories that deal with the great issues that people struggle with and the great questions everyone asks. It's a story about um, love and betrayal, about peace shattered by rebellion. It's about uh, conflict and self-sacrifice and ultimately about redemption. In a sense, when you think about it, this is pretty much the way all stories work. And there's kind of a, a sense that this is the story that all stories are really an echo of. And if you think about it, if a story is a good one, it's got four parts. It's got a beginning. It's got conflict. Something bad happens. And then the whole story usually is about conflict resolution. And then they have what writers call a denouement. It's, a, it's an ending. It's a tying up it all together at the end. This is like a worldview, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's exactly the same pieces. Now, the Christian story starts a long time ago, uh, long before uh, Jesus, of course, and how long ago is a matter of debate, but that doesn't concern me here. What does concern me is that this story does not start out once upon a time. And the reason the story does not start out once upon a time is because it's not meant to be understood as a fairy tale or a fiction, a myth. When my 11-year-old was younger, she read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and she said, Papa, is that story about, about uh, Lucy and Peter and Susan and Edmund, is that a true story? She was just five at the time. I said, I said no, honey, that's not a true story. Uh, some stories are true, and some are not true. There's a sense in which it is a fictional story about a true story, but the story itself is not true. But then I was quick to tell her that is not the same as the story we tell when we talk about Christianity. Ours is a story of the way things actually are. It's not a make-believe story. It's a true story. When I say it's a true story, I mean true in the ordinary sense of the word. I don't mean true for me. I mean true about reality. That is, the things the story describes actually exist, and the events actually took place. It's the story of the way the world actually is. That's the kind of story I'm telling. Now, I'm setting aside for a moment the question of whether I'm right about that. That's a different question. Are you right about telling? What I want all of you to understand, and wherever you're coming from, is this is the kind of story we tell. It's the story of reality. It isn't just our spiritual fantasy club, is the point. So, let me give you the backbone of the Christian story, the true story of reality, 
the storyline. It's also the historical timeline. I'm just going to give you five words that kind of allow you to keep things in order. So it's almost like the frame of the picture puzzle. So when you start working puzzles, you know how you often do the the frame first, and that's what we're going to do here with these five words. You can use your fingers, very simple. God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. Let me do it again. God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. Here I mean the final resurrection. So you have God in the beginning and you have the final resurrection in the end and the important things that happen in between. Actually, I've just finished a book on this issue. It's called The Story of Reality, How the World Began, How It Ends, and Everything Important That Happens in Between. That's the storyline. Line. That's the big picture. It's both a plot line and a timeline. The important things that happen in the order they took place. And uh, next service, I'll have my daughters sitting here, and my eight-year-old will be here. But when she was six, she could tick them all off. Easy. So why don't we just try it and see if you got it yet? Wow. See, that's not hard. See, now you've got an outline right in your head. So if you want to explain the Christian story, you've got it there, a simple outline to help you do that. But I want to flesh that out. I want to, I want to tell the story, give you the big picture of Christianity. I want to tell you the story of reality. So let's start with God. Every story has a beginning, and here's how our story begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a very, very important line. It introduces everything that follows, and many of you haven't realized, in a certain sense, the significance of this. So, let me just point out a couple of things that will enable us to do a lot of work with our story. First of all, the story starts with God. Now, why is that? I'll tell you why. It's because the story is about God. Let me put it in a different way. The story is not about you. (laughs) The story is about God. The story is not about you. Now, let me just say something to you if you're a follower of Christ. There are a lot of Christians that get this mixed up, and therefore they are very surprised when certain kinds of things happen in their lives. When I was young, my mother used to say to me, Gregory, full name, you know there's something important to listen to, like verily, verily. Gregory, the world does not revolve around you. See, your mother's taught you that as well. And our mothers were right. The world does not revolve around us. But we sometimes forget that when we grow up and we think it does, and we have a culture that encourages us to think that way about ourselves. And when it doesn't go just so, then we wonder as Christians what happened. Where did God go? And this is because we have the order wrong. We thought it was about us. We thought it was about, and if I could put it this way, with not, without meaning any disrespect, but we thought it was about God's wonderful plan for our lives instead of about, about our lives for God's wonderful plan. God's interests, God's purposes come first. 
That's the order. Why? Because the story is about Him. Not only is the story about God, but in this story, everything belongs to God. Now, why does everything belong to God? Because He made it. <laughs> you make it, it's yours. You know, that's kind of how that works. It's not just all that belongs to God, but we all belong to God too. And I don't mean we Christians, I mean everybody. Everybody belongs to God. Here's the third thing the story has a theme. And a lot of times people wonder um, what the main theme of the Bible is, and they'll think, well, maybe it's love. Well, you know, love actually isn't mentioned into the book of Deuteronomy, curiously. Uh, maybe it's, um, you know, salvation or redemption, and all those things actually are important parts of the story, but it's not what the story is about. What the story is about is right there in the first line. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You have a king, a sovereign, who creates a domain, and the domain is his, and he rules over the domain. So you have a king and a domain, or a king and a dome, or a kingdom. You have a kingdom. That is the main theme of the whole story. It is God's rightful, appropriate rulership over all that is His. And we'll see there was a war in the kingdom, there was a rebellion, and it caused a rift that needed to be sealed. And this is why when you come to later parts of the story, you see John the Baptist speaking about the what? Kingdom of God. And you see Jesus preaching the kingdom of God. And you see the apostles, every one of them, promoting the kingdom of God. It is a call back to communion with the sovereign and a life lived under His care in the orderly way that He desires so that we can live best. So, the, the theme of the, of the story is the kingdom. I want you to notice one other thing here that's pretty important, and that is that in our story, God is different from His creation. In other stories, God and the creation are the same. In our story, God's different. You have first mind, and then you have matter. God made nature. He's not the same as nature. The planet is not a person. The sun doesn't have a name like Ra in other ancient Near Eastern religions. The sun has a function. The moon has a function. The planet has a function. Strictly speaking, in our story, you do not respect nature. You respect the one, the person who made nature. You show respect for other people who you share nature with by not trashing things. But you don't respect nature. That's actually a form of idolatry because nature is not a person. To treat a thing like a person is idolatrous. And finally, this first step, I want you to see that reality now consists of two very different kinds of things, immaterial mind and physical matter. So there is a physical world, there's a non-physical world. I want you to see that in our story, both of them make perfect sense so that we have 
uh, a world in which material things like birds and babies and asteroids and atoms are real and immaterial things like spirits and souls and minds and miracles, these are equally at home. There is nothing inconsistent about this. I've listened to debates with atheists and Christians, and the, the, the atheist thinks, if he could just mention, you think somebody raised, rose from the dead? You think somebody turned water into wine? Are you kidding me? That makes no sense. Of course it doesn't make sense in that world. In our world, it makes perfect sense. It fits our account of reality. And this uh, tells you, by the way, that there are, there are competing accounts, and one of them is the view that matter is all that exists. I call it matterism. Most people call it materialism. And uh, this is not the Christian view. This is a conflicting view. This is a competing view. This is the view that most atheists hold is the true picture of reality. And on this view, the cosmos is all there is, ever was, or ever shall be. This is a fairly well-known statement from Carl Sagan. No God, no souls, no heaven or hell, no miracles, no morality, no ultimate purpose, just molecules clashing in the universe, matterism. There's another competing story, so I want you to think of this in terms of contrast, in the Christian story, you have mind and matter. One competing story says, all there is is matter. Another competing story says, all there is is mind. Now, this is the Eastern concept of religion, the Hindu concept, essentially, the New Age, uh, Oprah Winfrey, you know, this is uh, that, that, what, that God and everything else are the same, that the, really the only thing that exists is God, and that everything else is simply an illusion. Different story. It's not the Christian story, by the way, and some Christians who are untutored in their own convictions and understanding the story, they will watch TV shows or programs that promote this notion, and there's a lot of Christian pieces that kind of get mixed in, and they hear familiar words and Bible verses being quoted and the name Jesus being used, and they are beguiled into thinking that this is their story when it is not. It is a very different story. So the first piece of our puzzle is God. God exists. He's the creator of everything else from nothing else. The world He made is His kingdom. He's different from His creation. God's world includes both mind and matter, physical stuff and non-physical stuff. Both are real. And of course, God is not going to be limited by the natural laws that limit everything else. God can do whatever He wants. One last thing. Everything was exactly the way God's noble mind intended. It was all set out just right. It was all just the way it was supposed to be, which is just another way of saying that everything God made was good. God. Now, I want to introduce you to another character in the story. He's next because he's the second most important character in the story. An entire chapter is devoted just to the creation of man, God, man. Now, in one way, human beings are pretty much like other stuff in one way. 
We're made of physical stuff. That means we are creatures. That means we are contingent. We are not little gods. Some people are confused on this. We're not little gods. We're critters. All right? But we are also made of non-physical stuff, which um, is often denied but strikes me as obvious. Man has a soul that is an invisible self. The soul is where all your um, certain functions and activities take place, like your thoughts, your beliefs, your sensations, your intentions, your acts of will. All of these things are not physical things. I'm moving my hands. That's a physical thing. When I will something, when I have a thought, there may be physical activity going on in my brain, but the thought is not the same as my brain. The thought is in my mind. So human beings are made of non-physical stuff. Now, this is not what makes human beings distinct from all other sentient creatures. All other sentient creatures actually have souls too. This is classical Christianity. Teaching is in the Bible. The difference between you and Fido is not, or in our case, CC, and I can't even remember the name of the cat. We got two cats. I, I remember one. What's the other one? A chunky or... You know where my priorities lie. I'll have my daughters remind me. But the difference is not in that we have souls and they don't. They do have souls, but uh, they have different kinds of souls because only human souls have the mark of God on them. They are imprinted with something like God. We are not gods, but we are God-like, and this sets us apart. We have the image of God imprinted on our souls, and this is what grounds all of our moral obligations towards each other. Human beings are different. We know this. This is why we gas termites, but we're not supposed to gas Jews, because humans aren't bugs. Even when some people think that way, we know they're mistaken. They've missed something really important. And it's this unique likeness between God and man that makes it possible for man to have a unique friendship with God. It's the thing we were made for, to be in friendship with God. Now, He is still our King. He's still our sovereign, but He can also be our friend. This is what people are referring to when they say we can have a relationship with God. And God made a wonderful place for humans to live in. He gave them everything that they needed to be happy, but the most important thing that He gave was Himself. But there's another detail of this story, and the detail is that even though man was capable of living in friendship with God under his rulership in his kingdom, he could also betray the friendship. He could also rebel. In a word, he could be bad, and this is what's called moral freedom. And man did not use his freedom well. Instead of using it to honor God, he used it to rebel. He did not want to be under God. He wanted to be independent. He wanted to do his own thing. And when he chose rebellion rather than obedience, everything changed. When human beings re rebelled against the sovereign of the universe, they broke the world. 
Where did all this evil come from? It came from rebellion by human beings who rebelled against a, a, a benevolent sovereign and created wreckage and damage. And a broken world produces broken people and broken circumstances. Man is still beautiful, but now there's a huge problem. He's also broken. He's desperately fallen. He's morally twisted. He's in active rebellion. And as a result, he's spiritually dead. He's unplugged from the only source of life that is available to him, true life. And he is not capable of plugging himself back in. And not only that, he's enslaved by two new masters. He's enslaved by his own corrupted, twisted self. The story calls this the flesh. And he's also enslaved by the one he chose to follow rather than God, Satan. Not a guy in red tights with the horns and a pitchfork, but a real powerful spiritual force that has been in control of men's minds ever since. Man is guilty of sedition against his sovereign, the king of the universe. He is lost, and the king is angry. Now, a lot of people don't like this part. God's God of love. Well, He is a God of love, but love flows from His goodness, and because of God's goodness, He must respond to the evil that human beings have brought to this earth. This is why there's evil in the world, because of things that men have done. That's where, and, and, and sometimes Christians are lost, and they think, well, I don't know what to do about this problem. They don't realize it's part of our story. In the third chapter, it comes up, and the rest of the story is all about repairing and dealing with the problem of evil. Sixty-six books. It's not foreign to our story. It's part of our story, and the story is not over yet. The story is not over yet. With man lost and helpless now, God Himself steps into the picture in a very unique way to initiate a rescue operation, to solve the problem of evil. God, man, what? Jesus. Now, there are two important things you need to know about Jesus, and neither have really, in a certain sense, anything to do with His broader teachings. That is, those who are taken with the teachings of Jesus, but uh, get these two things wrong have completely missed the point. And those two things are who Jesus was and what He came to do. Who Jesus was and what He came to do, classically known as the person and the work of Christ. You get those wrong, all the rest of this stuff does not matter a single bit. So who was Jesus? Well, Jesus was a real human being, okay? Um, he had a true human nature. He had a human birth. He had a body of flesh and blood. He had a human soul like us. He, he had human feelings and human limitations, and he became hungry and became tired, and he felt grief, and he felt joy. Everything that is true about us in our native humanity was true about Jesus of Nazareth. But there's something more. Jesus was a man, but not just a man. And the story is very clear on this point. Remember how our story starts? In the beginning, God. 
How does Jesus' story start? Go to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He came into being. All things came into being through Him, and nothing came into being apart from Him. And we go down to verse 14, and you hear this one mysteriously called the Word. It says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I actually think this is the greatest line in the entire story. I mean, the very first line is pretty cool, God creating everything. That takes power and magnificence, but to become a man, that is sublime. And so this one who became a man, the Word, become a man in Jesus, is the same one who is identified in the beginning of the story, the first line. This Jesus is the King become man. Come down to be with us. He was the God who started it all. He was the God-man, which is kind of weird. I appreciate that. But I want you to think about what this actually means, what it tells us about God. I want you to think for a moment about if you have small children and they are frightened or they're hurt or they're um, anguished in some way, as an adult, don't you have a natural tendency to come in low to them, to crouch down? to get low, to get down on their level, to engage, to talk with them, to soothe them, to comfort them. That's exactly what God did. God came down. God got low to be with us, to comfort us, to come close to us. Here's where the story, the way the story puts it in Philippians chapter 2, although Jesus existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, hung on to, but He emptied Himself. He took the form of a bondservant, and being made in likeness of men, he began, and being found in the appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." God, out of love, in whom humility stepped down, got low, got among us. Now, He never ceased being God. It's like the king who takes off his robes and his crown and lays aside his scepter and then walks among the people, donning the robes of a common beggar to be among his people, never ceasing to be the sovereign, but still getting close to his people. This is what God did. So this is the answer to our first question. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the God-man, God humbling Himself to come down to earth as a man. And it's an example, as Paul puts it in Philippians, for us to be like that. Follow that example. By the way, this is not the Jesus of Islam. There is a Jesus in Islam. This isn't it. This is not the Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses. This is not the Jesus of Mormonism. This is not the Jesus of Oprah Winfrey in the New Age. Those are different stories. 
That's the answer to our first question, who is Jesus? He was a man, but He was God as well. But now our question, our second question, why did Jesus come? What did He come to do? And there's a lot more confusion on this nowadays than there ought to be because uh, people think that Jesus came to teach peace and love and help us all get along and, and uh, promote social justice. That is not why Jesus came. It's not that He doesn't care about those things, but it's not why He came. What if I told you that I could remove every single reference in Jesus' life to the poor and social justice and not interfere with His main purpose one single bit? That would probably surprise you, but that's exactly what one of His closest followers did. That follower is named John, and when he wrote the account, the final account of the life of Jesus called the Gospel of John, there is not a single reference to anything about social justice in that. Again, it's not that it's completely unimportant. How could He leave it out? Because it's not the reason Jesus came. Well, why did He come? Well, what does the story say? What does Jesus say? I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. The Son of Man did not come to be served but to give His life a ransom for many. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came that the world might be saved through Him. That's what Jesus said was the reason that He came. Now, to save means to rescue from imminent danger. So, what is the danger that Jesus is rescuing us from? This is very important. What is the threat? What is Jesus rescuing from? I'll tell you what Jesus is rescuing us from. He is rescuing us from the Father. Remember, the king is mad. Do not fear those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's Matthew 10, Jesus saying that. Want to be frightened about something? Don't be frightened about those people out there. They, all they can do is hack you to pieces. Compared to God, that's nothing. That's the bad news. Ready for some good news? I said this was a rescue operation. How did Jesus rescue? What did He do? He did two things. First, He lived the life that we should have lived. He did what we should have done, and we did not do. Every single thing that He was supposed to do, that we are supposed to do, honored the Father completely, Jesus accomplished. Every place that we fail, He did not fail. And the second thing He did is He made a trade. His life for ours. His good life for our rotten lives. And that trade took place on a small outcropping outside the walls of ancient Jerusalem. It's called Golgotha, the place of the skull. We know it as Calvary, the place of the cross. God, man, Jesus, cross. A crucifixion is a cruel form of punishment. It's generally reserved for slaves and rebels. The way the person who dies, dies is, by, is essentially by asphyxiation. That is, when they hang from the cross and they're stretched out, hanging from the nails. They just can't exhale. 
in order to get a breath, they have to push up and pull up against the nails and push up against the nails and the feet in order to exhale and get another breath before they collapse again. And eventually, after sometimes days of this, they get so exhausted, they can't do it anymore, and they just suffocate. For Jesus, though, the pain of the cross actually paled in the face of a greater anguish, a deeper torment that is more excruciating than the nails that pinned his, his arms and feet to the timbers, more dreadful than the lashes that ripped his flesh from his frame. It's a dark, terrible, incalculable agony, an infinite misery, really, as God the Father unleashed his anger upon his sinless son, as if Jesus were guilty of an immeasurable evil. Now, why punish Jesus, the innocent one? Well, nailed to the top of the cross was a certificate of sorts. It was a plaque called a titleist, and it identified the crime that Jesus had committed, king of the Jews. He was being tried for sedition, essentially, and the cross was payment for the crime. And in the ancient Near East, when debts were paid. They were often officially canceled out with a Greek word, just one word. It said tetelestai, and it just meant canceled or completed, paid, kind of like you cancel a check. But being king of the Jews is not the crime that Jesus pays for, however. Hidden to all but the Father is another certificate nailed to that cross. You find, read about it in Colossians chapter 2. It was a decree of de- it was a list of decrees against us, which were hostile to us. That is our rap sheet, our list of crimes that we had committed against God, the things that we are guilty of. And God is making a list, and He's checking it twice, and He doesn't miss anything. Paul says God nailed it to Jesus' cross so that Jesus paid for our crimes. And in the darkness that shrouds Calvary from the sixth to the ninth hour, a divine transaction, a trade is taking place. And punishment adequate for all the crimes of all humanity, every murder, every theft, every lustful glance, every modest moment of pride, every monstrous deed of evil, punishment adequate for every crime of every man or woman who ever lived. Jesus took upon Himself as if He were the guilty one. And in the end, arguably, the cross doesn't take His life. He doesn't die of shock or asphyxiation, but rather when the, when the last of the debt is paid, Jesus simply dismisses His spirit. But before He does, a single word escapes his lips. Tetelestai. Now, your Bible's translated, it is finished, but Jesus isn't saying, I'm glad that's over with. This is a victory cry. He's saying the debt has been paid. It's canceled out. It's done. I've completed it. Jesus takes our guilt. We take his goodness. That's the trade. It's called substitutionary atonement. You want theological words? It's called justification. But here's the way Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, the Father, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, 
to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And this was planned. The prophet Isaiah described it 700 years earlier. Surely our griefs He Himself bore. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. By His scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. And friends, this is why Jesus is the only way. He is the only one who solved the problem. He is the only one who lived a perfect life. He is the only one who took the punishment in our stead and without Him. We cannot be saved from our overwhelming guilt without Jesus. We pay ourselves. Now, what I just described is a gift. It cannot be earned. It can only be trusted for. And this is what the story means by faith. God, man, Jesus, cross. And what you decide about the cross will determine what happens to you at the final resurrection. Now, I'm very quickly here because I'm out of time. The final resurrection, one of two things is going to happen. And for some of you, this might be a little bit frightening, but it's okay to be scared of something really dangerous. What will happen at the last resurrection is either perfect justice or perfect mercy. Perfect justice, punishment for everything you have ever done and God misses nothing, everything you've ever done wrong, and, or perfect mercy, forgiveness for everything you've ever done wrong, and God misses nothing. And for those that continue in their rebellion against the sovereign, they will have their day in court, and this will not be pretty. And the punishment will include torment, and banishment from God, and if we were made for God, and we are banished from Him forever, then that will be agony. And it will be a banishment that never ends, and the clock will never run out. In fact, the clock will not even start. But for those who have put their trust in God's rescuer. They will live with Him in a new world, enjoying the perfect life that He intended for us at the first, experiencing the life better than the best you could ever imagine forever. So I've just told you a story, and if you're a Christian, this is your story. And if you are not a Christian, then this is your story, because what I've told you is not a fairy tale. This is the story of the way things really are.
This is the story of reality. It's actually a story I can tell in a single sentence, including each of the five elements, God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. It's a long sentence, but here it goes. God, the creator of the universe, in order to rescue man from punishment for his rebellion, took on humanity in Jesus, the Savior, to die on a cross and rise from the dead so that in the final resurrection we can enjoy a wonderful friendship with our sovereign Lord and the kind of perfect world that our hearts have always yearned for. But it's not just a story. It's a true story. It is the true story. It is the story of reality. Father, thank You so much for this wonderful story that You out of love came down to rescue us when we did not deserve it. Thank You for Your kindness and Your grace, for the sacrifice You've made on our behalf. For Christ's sake, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.